The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Providing insight and resources for your spiritual journey. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hey everybody, happy good vegan day or veg curious day or whatever kind of day you are having, wherever you might be. Thank you for spending part of it with us. I have a treat for you. You know, if you just walked in my door right now, I would slice up some raw veggies and find some interesting gourmet crackers in the pantry. And then I would just slice up some of the most delectable vegan cheeses that I know of and offer those to you. And I would actually have purchased those cheeses at an amazing little shop in Brooklyn called Riverdale. And the treat that we have in our first segment today is that I'm introducing you to the founder, the proprietress, and uh, the savvy behind Riverdale Cheese. And she is Michaela Grobe. Michaela has a background in the hospitality industry. She is a Main Street Vegan certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator. And some two years ago, she left her corporate career to open Riverdale Cheese Shop in Brooklyn. It has been open now for about one year. And oh my gosh, it's getting press. It's getting awards. It's getting a line of people taking the subway to Brooklyn to delight in the fabulous cheeses that Michaela and staff make themselves, as well as all the vegan cheeses that we've heard about and love, and some that we've never heard of, and get to meet there and grow to love. Welcome, Michaela Grove. Thank you so much for having me, Victoria. This is, good. This is really great. Thank you. 
Well, it's an absolute pleasure. I mean, I remember when you were doing the preliminary work to open Riverdale, and you did a lot of it. You really did not leave any stones unturned in terms of your business education and making all the connections that you needed to make so you could have a solid foundation. And now Riverdale is just going crazy. It's so exciting. So start from the beginning. Tell us how you got to vegan and then how you got to cheese. Um, I've been, I was vegetarian, so I, I started off vegetarian, cutting out the meat and so on, and then the more you learn, um, eventually I just decided to cut out old animal products. So it was a gradual transition. I've been vegan now for about six years, roughly, um, and always liked cheese. So naturally, when I became vegan, I started looking for some, you know, good uh, vegan cheeses and there are a lot out there but it's kind of difficult to find and you have to order them or you have, really have to know where you're looking for so that's where the idea uh, for Riverdale was born and your background is, is already in hospitality you know how to take care of people so just give us a little bit of the story of how you had the idea then what happened then a lot of research happened <laughs> um being in, uh, coming from a corporate world going into a or becoming an entrepreneur is is a big change because starting a business you have to do everything yourself so i kind of wanted to be prepared as much as possible and find out all the things i don't know um so the first step was really, I think the first time I actually sat out loud that I want to open a vegan cheese shop was when I, when I was at the Main Street Vegan Academy. And I put the word out there, and then it was, it was out there. Um, and then it became real. And uh, shortly thereafter, I started doing research, uh, business plans, really looking into as much as I like cheese, and as much as I hear people, you know, asking for vegan cheese, I also wanted to make sure that that's indeed a feasible uh, feasible business plan and, you know, where to open and all this great product research, which is always fun. Um, so, yeah, started the research and then a few, about a year and a half ago, I found a location that I liked and started finding the lease. And then it became, again, it became very real because then you have a lease and then you really need to start doing something. So now... In about four weeks, we have our first year anniversary. Oh, that's so exciting. So I know that in addition to in the shop, I mean, seriously, if you're in New York and you haven't been there or if you're planning a trip to New York, you've got to put this on your to-visit list. It's just a charming shop, and it's not just cheese. You have yogurt, you have interesting drinks, you have interesting kind of gourmet foods that are all vegan and many that you can't find anywhere else. And you have a little counter where you serve, I don't know what you put in these toasted cheese sandwiches, but my husband, who barely likes to leave our neighborhood, will go all the way to Brooklyn for one of your toasted cheese sandwiches. So you've got a lot going on. But I know that getting a, a restaurant open, particularly in New York City, is so difficult. Do you have to get all kinds of permits and things? Yeah, there were quite a there was quite a lot of permits. But the city of New York, and I think a lot of cities do that actually now, are really wanting to help small businesses. And there is actually a service that will 
um, that you can go to and they help you identify which permits you need, where to file. They don't file it for you, but you still, they at least point in the right direction because my fear was like, I'm opening the door and then I forgot to apply for a certain permit and they shut me down again. So I didn't want to, obviously didn't want that. So I, I worked with that, uh, with that New York City um, department and they helped me figure out what permits I need. But it's, yeah, there's, there's quite some, some paperwork involved, but it's, oh. once you have done the research and once, especially having someone that helps you with it, makes it a lot easier. And they will also help you get the permits faster. Mm. So you even got the blessing of the bureaucracy. Now, yes. you're so, I know everybody who opens a business wants a successful business, but you actually have a mission for Riverdale. What is that? I want to help people see that there is there are great choices out there where in, that will help you not depend on dairy i kind of of course i wanted to have a great you know cheese selection but i really want to ha- show people that one does not have to depend on dairy and i said to me myself when i opened this i said like even if it's just one or two people that i help become vegan then that's, that's great. That's what I kind of want to help. And I also want to help, you know, your, help people that have non-vegan friends, of course, that show them that there are great vegan options out there that are delicious and you don't have to be afraid of it. Mm-hmm. So are your customers all vegan? No, they're not. Uh, we do have a good amount of vegans, but we have a lot of people that are lactose intolerant or that have family members that are lactose intolerant, um, you know, children that are lactose intolerant or young mothers that decide to cut out dairy because it's not good for, for the for the baby either. So we do have a lot of people that are not vegan. And I think that's the great thing because it just showcases I wanna showcase all these options and I wanna help people look beyond dairy. It's so cool. <laughs> I just I know that there was a time when about the closest we could come to cheese was putting cashews and celery in a blender <laughs> and making a sort of dip that if you really did a lot of positive thinking, you could think was a little bit cheesy. Oh, my yeah. goodness, how far we've come. So tell us what's new in cheese. What are some of your favorite cheeses and what's new and what do we have to look forward to? Oh, I just got in the most amazing cheese from Canada which I'm really excited about. They actually, the producers came from the drove down from Quebec and delivered it themselves because they don't have a distributor or anything like that. Also very small batch. And they're, they make a, a chevre that's just amazing. I mean, really, really great. Um, so I'm very excited about that one. We just got that in a few days ago. Um, we have... We're going uh, this weekend. We're going to um, the Woodstock Animal Sanctuary, and for the Halloween event, so we'll be having some great uh, we'll have our sandwiches up there as well. And some other great stuff we just got in is the herbivorous butcher um, uh, foods from Minneapolis, which I'm very excited I missed that about. One. Can you say that again? The, the Minneapolis herbiv- one. Yeah, the Herbivorous Butcher, the vegan butcher that opened. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we have there, we have their steaks and sausages and things like that. So, so uh-huh. we're very 
that and we were playing around and having like fun sandwiches. We had steak and eggs last weekend. So, um, so it's always fun to get new products in and we like to experiment. And my team is really fantastic because they come up with great ideas of what to do with it. That's so. so funny, Michaela. You're from Austria, and now you're selling sausages. Of course, they're vegan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, I, I don't know. <laughs> Life is funny. And, and everything, there's just this lightness about whenever you get something that's vegan. I mean, I think people that eat animal products, and they don't see anything wrong with that. You know, they go to the store, they buy some cheese, they buy some sausage, I guess they're glad they've bought it, but it doesn't have this incredible fun and uplift of, oh my gosh, I went to a vegan cheese shop and I got some vegan sausage. It's just different and you don't know till you're there. (laughs) So what is, is there one most popular cheese in your entire shop? Well, I mean, not to, you know, I mean, it's our the one we make in house is our most popular, and oh, you know, not, I don't want to. I don't just say that because it's of course it's our house made cheese, but it's our most popular cheese. We you know it's this, it's a very light cheese. We roll it in pepper, and it's just it's very easy as well. A lot of people bring it to their friends that are not vegan, and everyone is kind of you know, it's a very easy uh, uh, cheese to enjoy. So it is definitely a very popular one. Oh, that's so cool. I love the idea that there's cheese that you make in-house. And then these lovely folks drove down from Quebec. And it's interesting as veganism gets bigger and bigger and there are certain, you know, companies out there with huge investors and it's getting, you know, some of our companies are being bought by giant conglomerates. And that's all great to get everything more out into the world. But I'm still very attracted to the kind of funky they drove down from Quebec. Yes. Yeah. No, and that's great. And we we have so many small uh, small producers that are really just making very small batch and that's really great. On the other hand, I'm also applauding anything, you know, like what Miyoko does and going really out into major distributors and bringing it to all these stores because the more there is, the more awareness and the more people see it on the shelves, the easier it will be for them um, to make those choices and to make a vegan choice and I think that's just, you know, that's very important as well. It is indeed. Michaela, what is the best part about owning a cheese shop? <laughs> well, uh, the best part, I mean, having, you know, I take a lot of cheese home with me, I have to admit. I mean, I do like cheese, and it is definitely, I do often just have a cheese plate for dinner, and that's pretty cool. <laughs> It is, and you get to draw on your European roots and <laughs> be all very chic about it. And I'll bet it's really a beautiful cheese plate, too, because everything that you do at the shop is just so artistically done. So you have received awards already in your first year of business, and now you're up for another one from, is that Time Out Magazine? Tell us how we can vote for you. Uh, it's Time Out Magazine, and it's actually, we were nominated by our customers, which I'm really grateful for. We have some amazing customers, I must say. And um, you go to Time Out, and you look for Love NYC. And then uh, you look for the neighborhood that we're in. It's Prospect Heights, and it gives you a bunch of businesses. And then there is a link to vote for the business that uh, that you'd like to support. So, Wonderful. 
if, uh, yeah, if uh, we could get some extra words, it would be fantastic. <laughs> That's great. Well, if you want to uh, email me that exact information, I will put it in the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net so people can just go right there and vote for you. And, you know, even if you're not in New York, take my word for it, they ought to win. And tell us just before we go, Michaela, where did the name come from, Riverdale? Riverdale is the name of two of my pets, uh, River, our dog, and Fidel, our cat. (laughs) They're both rescues, and we've had the name. We called them often at home, Riverdale, and then one day we were like, that would actually be a cool name for a shop. So naturally, when I decided about opening a shop, I was like, it's going to be Riverdale. There wasn't even a question. Yeah. Now, you do not ship far away because I know people are going to be writing in and asking that. Yeah. No, we don't. And it's really due to space constraints because we have very small, very small shops, no storage and very limited space for production. So Mm -hmm. if we're, or even for storage. So if we would do shipping, we would have to store a lot more products and a lot more items that would help us with the shipping. And we just don't have the space for it. Mm. So be a logistic uh, a logistic issue for us. Well, I think but. it's wonderful that some things are just where they are <laughs> because that makes it special. And people can go to your wonderful website, riverdellcheese.com. And when you come to New York City, make a point. It's yummy. Thank you, Michaela. Thanks for spending some time with us. Thank you so much for having me. All the best. And everybody else, please stay tuned. I'm going to be introducing someone for whom we have to give a U.S. government disclaimer. Ah, maybe that has piqued some attention. We'll be back. Unity Online Radio brings you inspiring programs on a variety of spiritual topics. Giving to the network is now easier than ever. Simply text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. You can make a one-time or recurring donation. Your gifts help us offer enriching spiritual programs that reach listeners around the world. Text Unity Radio to 72727. Thank you for your support. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller.
Just like life, grief is a journey, not a destination. Whether it is loss of life, relationship, security, or simply the process of change, have you given yourself permission to begin your journey of grief? Have you yielded to the gift of grace? Join Reverend Chaz Wesley every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central on a virtual navigation from grief to grace and explore new horizons of empowerment, significance, and support only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. I just want to uh, send your attention to the blog, MainStreetVegan.net. This week, the post is Leading by Example by Cindy Lou Negron. She's one of our Main Street Vegan Academy certified coaches. She lives in Puerto Rico. And her post is really about something that Emerson said a long time ago. Your actions speak so loudly, I can't hear the words you say. It's a wonderful post, very inspiring and practical. And if you want to scroll on down, the post from last week, if you didn't hear about that, is about Halloween trick-or-treat solutions. So if you're vegan or if you just want to provide something fun and healthy for the little goblins, do have a look at that post as well. It is from uh, Vicki Stevens. She is a nutritionist and a vegan lifestyle coach. And next week... Since I won't be talking to you live next week, I'll let you know that the blog is going to be from me, and it's called A Brief History of Veganism, with a link to the National Vegetarian Museum site and the video that I have done for them about vegetarian history. They're just getting started out there in Chicago. Very exciting. We're all over the place. Have you noticed that? And somebody else who is all over the place is our most esteemed sponsor, Vegan Outreach. They always say Vegan Outreach. Outreach is proud to support Main Street Vegan, but the pride is mine. Thank you, Vegan Outreach. Their wonderful organization strives for a vegan society, and it's one of the world's most active organizations promoting a vegan lifestyle, spreading a message of compassionate living to college students throughout the U.S., Canada, Mexico, Australia, New Zealand, and India. Vegan Outreach also supports new and transitioning vegans with their vegan mentor program. And guess who can get involved with that? and actually be a vegan mentor or get a vegan mentor, that would be you. Go to veganoutreach.org and become part of this wonderful, wonderful uh, one-on-one and one-to-a-few opportunity. And don't miss out on their weekly e-newsletter because it's full of great recipes and newsy stuff and product giveaways. And you can subscribe at the same place, veganoutreach.org. R-G. Now to introduce to you our featured guest, she is Aisha Attar, MD, 
MPH, double board certified in neurology and preventive medicine and public health. She's on a mission to show that what's good for animals is also good for humans. Now, I told you that this was the only guest for whom we had a disclaimer. Very official. I'll read you that and then you'll find out why we need it. The opinions expressed here are those of Dr. Akhtar and do not represent the official position of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration or the U.S. government. Now, after we hear her, we'll probably wish that they did. But Dr. Akhtar is a fellow of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics, and she works for the Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. She serves as Lieutenant Commander in the U.S. Public Health Service Commissioned Corps to protect the citizenry from public health threats. And in her book, Animals and Public Health, she writes about how many of our most urgent health public health threats are connected to how we treat animals. Welcome, Dr. Aisha Akhtar. Thank you, Victoria. I'm glad to be here. I'm so glad that you're here. Some of my best guests are people that my husband finds for me. <laughs> and he <read> something <laughs> by you or about you online, and he's like, you have to know about this woman. And I'm absolutely fascinated by what you do, and I'm certainly fascinated whenever a vegan is in a position of public trust and really working to change policy. It's very, very exciting. So give us some background about you how did all of these myriad things that you do manage to come together? Um, well, actually, uh, you know, as a child, I always um, had this natural affiliation for animals. I just sought them out. I loved animals, I, and I even took care of them. I tried to nurse injured animals back to health. And um, that, along with an, an incident um, in which um, a dog helped me through a very traumatic period in my life, really instilled in me a very strong sense of kinship with animals. And so over the years, as I grew older, I started to apply how the, the learning that what I learned from trying to rehabilitate animals into trying to help humans, and I made... And, at some point, I made the connection that the struggles for humans and animals are not really so different. And um, as I started to, as I, again, grew older and I started to make the connection, I started to learn about how animals are treated across the world, I started to think about it not only from the perspective of animals, but also from our perspective, from the human health perspective. Um, and in my medical training, one of the things that really frustrated me again and again is that, and even today is that in, in government, is that when we talk about a lot of our public health threats that we face today, for example, when we talk about pandemic flu, we talk about environmental destruction, we talk about um, overweight, obesity, it, the, the high rates of stroke and heart disease and so on, we don't really talk about their underlying causes. And many of these problems that I have found when I wrote the book, Animals in Public Health, are very much linked with how we think about how we treat animals and how we relate with them. And so what my goal, what my you know, goal now as, as a doctor and as someone who's, who is very well aware of these public health threats that we face is to try to show people that, you know, you don't need to think about animal protection or animal advocacy as 
only that for animals, which in itself is a reason enough to, to care about the issue. But my goal is also to show people, like as you said, that what's good for animals is basically good for us. I mean, it sounds a bit Pollyannish, but what I have found um, in, the, in my research is that when we save animals, when we strive to protect them, when we strive to treat them with basic dignity and respect, in other words, when we improve our relationship with all animals, we will find that there are enormous, enormous benefits to our health as well. Well, that is really exciting. Now, do you find that you get a lot of pushback on that? I mean, I'm taken back in, in memory to the 1990s when Howard Lyman appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show at a time when mad cow disease that appeared as if it might be a, a pressing threat and Oprah's said that she wouldn't eat another burger, and the next thing we knew, they were both down in Texas being sued. Is this a, a very threatening um, proposition that you make out there in the world of public policy? Um, so, you know, that's why I have to always keep the, uh, why I had to have the disclaimer and, and keep um, my work, unfortunately, on animal protection very separate from my day job, which is a problem because, you know, I work on issues of, pandemic flus and, you know, infectious diseases, and, and I know that so many of these problems are as a result, a direct or indirect result of, of our treatment of animals. I mean, the, the flu, the flu um, the pan, a pandemic flu virus, for example, is most likely going to come from a factory farm. I mean, that's what the research is really truly pointing to. Because of the conditions that animals face on these farms, because of their just crowded, miserable conditions. Their immune systems are down. It's so easy for them to catch infection from one another and then pass it on. The, what we are finding is like the, there's been a rapid increase in the mutation of the flu virus in these factory farms. And each time the virus mutates, it can mutate into a very deadly and contagious form. So that's one way how we are seeing that the research is really pointing to, and it's strong research that the way we treat animals can be a direct threat to our own health. But it's frustrating for me in my job in government in that we don't ever discuss these issues. We don't ever look at how these threats develop. We only focus on how we're going to, you know, react after the fact. We're very reactive, but we're not proactive. So, you know, at least if I can't do that always in my day job is to address these issues, this is my mission is to at least address this by night and to, to you know, on my own is to show how the, and to, to stress the impact of how we treat animals and how it affects our health. Mm. So are we looking at a pandemic flu? I know people talked about bird flu and things for a few years and then they stopped talking about it, at least in the popular press. Right. We have been incredibly incredibly lucky so far. So we hear about, little, you know, bird flus and swine flus that pop up in the media, and as you say, it gets, you know, a little, it gets, a, you know, um, attention, people worry, there's some public health folks, officials who come out and, and, you know, issue declarations about how, what vaccines we should get, and so on and so on, and there's all these fears about what's going to happen, and then the issue dies. That particular flu virus ended up not being so deadly or so contagious. That's what's been happening so far. But as I said, we have been incredibly, incredibly lucky. 
our luck is not going to last. I guarantee that we are going to see a flu virus coming out from a factory farm that's going to be incredibly deadly and contagious and that will, that will sweep across the globe. It's, I mean, these flu, these, these factory farms are like natural laboratories for the virus. They're the perfect conditions for a virus to mutate. And so, um, you know, I, I would tell people not to, not to take comfort in the fact that so far we haven't been hit hard. Unfortunately, I really do believe that the time is, is still to come. So if you were to say this to your colleagues, what sort of response do you imagine that you might get? <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, it's, they just, unfortunately, the, the way, the way people in government and, and my colleagues look at this is the way that most people look at how we treat animals. I mean, most people in government and in public health, you know, in, in some ways are contributing, in, in many ways are contributing to this problem. So we, if they eat animals, they are contributing, whether they know it or not, to, to the instigation of, uh, you know, new infectious diseases like, like a flu virus, a new mutated flu virus that can come out of factory farms. And so they, they go through the world with the same sort of blinders in regards to how we think about animals as the rest of the public does. So unfortunately, there is a um, a real gap in awareness and a real um, uh, reluctance on their part to address these fundamental causes and to really look hard at how we treat animals because that comes back to how they think about animals and how they relate with animals as well. Mm. How fascinating. I'm working on a, a film, The Compassion Project, a documentary to introduce the vegan lifestyle to people of faith. And I find that the response of people in the faith community is so much like that of the people in the science community, <laughs> where they disagree on a lot of things. But on those, uh, veganism seems to get the same response in uh, those sometimes diverse places. And so what, you... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I was going to ask, what no, kind of please. responses are you getting? Well, I think generally exactly what you're saying, that people do what they do, and people eat the foods that their mother fed them, and it has to be right, or my mom wouldn't have done it, and gosh, I really like it, and you don't really expect me to give up, you know, ABC food, and if there are certain um, dietary um, suggestions within a particular religion, it's usually temporary or short term. And people will say, well, I do that. <laughs> you know, how much more do you expect? I think sometimes as vegans, people think that we're the austerity squad, you know, wanting them to give up so much that they enjoy, which is why I, I'm really excited about, you know, the work our chefs and all these wonderful people in the food world are doing to say, guess what, we can save our lives and animal lives and uh, still eat well. Right. No, I totally agree. You know, one of the things I found, I don't know if you recall the swine um, flu uh, pandemic in 2009. Mm -hmm. And at the time, we were calling it swine flu because it, it originated from pigs and most likely originated from pigs in factory farms in Mexico. These were um, Smithfield farms. Um, and um, at the time, so for a while, the media was referring it to as, as swine flu. But then um, government uh, I, came under pressure from the agricultural industry to alter the name, 
to hide the fact that these the, the flu came from pigs. So they they started to push the government started to push um, the official the more scientific name which is H1N1, which is an accurate name, but it it I felt that it was a disservice to the public and it was uh, disingenuous of our governmental agencies to do that because it was an attempt in some ways to hide the origins of this flu virus or at least the suspected origins of the flu virus and even at the time. The CDC, on its website for this flu virus, had a direct link to the Pork Producers Council or whatever their official name is. I mean, so there's, it's, it's, it's an incredibly frustrating thing to find that not only are, you know, government um, agencies or health agencies ignorant about these issues or reluctant to even address these issues, but sometimes and often I would say that they are part of the problem in that they perpetuate the the myths that we have and perpetuate the the idea that what we are doing to animals is okay and doesn't cause harm to us. Mm. Well, then I'm all the more glad that you're there. I remember when that happened, and when I heard H1N1, it always sounded like R2-D2. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes, the science fiction flu, not at all fictional if you happen to get it. So you mentioned when you were talking about some of these public health threats that are related to the way we treat animals, environmental destruction. Is is anybody moving any more closely to, to making the agriculture connection to climate change and so forth? Oh, I, I think that's definitely happening throughout the world. I mean, we're in, in that sense that we are seeing more scientists writing articles linking climate change and environmental destruction to animal agriculture. Um, and um, there are some public health agencies that have made um, statements um, calling for a real look at this issue or calling for a moratorium even on further factory farm farms to be built. But um, so, yes, it is, it is definitely getting more attention, this issue, this connection between how we treat animals, factory farming, the, God, the enormous number of animals that are killed just so we can eat them each year, and how that is destroying our environment. This is absolutely destroying our planet. And it's leading to health problems as well in us. So people are making that connection. Scientists and some public health groups are making that connection. But as far as um, any real change coming out from our governmental agencies, that has yet to occur. Mm. So you are working on a new book. That is about to occur. (laughs) And tell us about that. Um, So this new book is actually going to be different from my prior book. The prior book, Animals in Public Health, was more um, academic in nature. It was really intended for the public health audience, but anyone. It was written in a way that anyone, any the lay audience can read it as well. But this next book that I'm working on is... um, Title still still working on that, but um, it's about how our relationships with animals impact our well-being. And here I'm mostly looking at our emotional health. And um, so it's a it's a bit of a, what we'd call a narrative nonfiction. So it's um, it's the the foundation is stories 
stories of others, stories of myself, stories of my journey as I've traveled around the country to understand the different ways we think about, relate with animals, and to understand how that's evolving and um, how that connects with our own health. And, um, for example, I've, um, uh, you know, been working, um, traveled to Oklahoma and um, went along in, and had some tours of some industrial farms to understand how the people who are running these farms think about animals. And what's interesting is that there was one farmer who has a chicken farm, who actually feels conflict over the fate of his animals. And, um, you know, there, there are a lot of stories like that. I, I came across a, a hunter, who, a deer hunter, who risked his life to save one deer trapped in ice. I came, I, you know, the stories I cover include that of a convicted serial killer who abused animals but recognized how the abuse of animals in his life connected with how he... Um, eventually became came to, to murder eight women. And so it's, it's the story is to look at how we relate with animals, good and bad, and how that impacts our well-being, not only as individuals but also as a society. So when we empathize with animals, I guess the, the theory, the, the, the thesis is, or the argument is that when we empathize with animals, we benefit. When we don't, we, um, we hurt ourselves as well. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, I've been writing this book, and I'm excited about the stories that I've been able to get across the country, and I'm excited about sharing that with the public. Oh, that sounds like a fascinating book. It also sounds like a really big book. That sounds like something that <laughs> a lot of television shows, a lot of really uh, important uh, journalists would want to cover, so... I'll be in the front row watching and reading. <laughs> we'll have to have you back on when, when that book comes out. So there is another way that we use animals in our society, uh, in which I know you have some interest, especially having been through medical school. We do have the great good news of the past month or so from Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine that the last North American medical school uh, has stopped using animals for surgical training. So um, what about animal experimentation? That's a tough one, and a lot of people are on the fence. Yeah, so this is one of those situations where people who are, you know, really pushing animal experiments to really promote it, try to make it seem like it's um, we're, we're trapped in some kind of false choice, that we have to make a choice between saving animals or saving humans. I mean, you hear this, if we don't experiment on rats or dogs, it's going to be your child who's going to be suffer. That's, that's the, the, the mantra they, they tend to say again and again. And the fact is, that's actually not true. In fact, it's the opposite. Um, when we have, in the past few decades, there, especially in the last 10 years, there's been a steady, steady increase in the number of um, examinations, um, research projects that have actually looked at how well experimenting on animals, um, how well the findings show what we are going to find in humans. So when you think about animal experiments, I mean, the idea we... Animals are experimented on because we expect what we find in the animals to tell us what we are going to find in humans. So we expect the animal experiments to predict what we will find in humans. We expect the animal experiments to predict 
the disease course in a human or to predict whether a drug will be safe and effective in humans. So animal experiments are meant to predict what we're going to find in humans. Well, these new studies, and these are called systematic reviews, and these are considered the top line of evidence in medical research, the very top line, are overwhelmingly showing that animal experiments across the board are absolutely failing in predicting what we're going to find in humans. They're just failing in large numbers. As a matter of fact, there was a recent um, quote from the National Institutes of Health that shows that 95% of the drugs, that they say that 95% of the drugs that pass through animal testing end up failing. And so uh, the majority reason why drug drugs fail in the drug development pipeline when it gets to human testing is that most of the drugs that are found safe and effective in animals are later found to be unsafe or ineffective in humans. So it's a animal experimentation is not only not a good way to study human diseases and to study treatments and cures for humans, it's actually detrimental. It's holding back medical progress. And the reason why this is so is because we're now dealing at this time in the subtle nuances of molecular biology. And, you know, we're no longer at that point where we're looking at crude biology, where we're looking at uh, things like, oh, does the heart have four chambers and, and is that the case in other animals? We're really looking at the nuances in biology now. And at this level, there are just way, way too many differences between species. And so what we really need to be doing is stop wasting our time, our money, our hopes, and causing suffering in animals and pouring money into animal experiments, and instead start funneling that money into effective human-based testing methods. Now, what does that mean, human-based testing methods? Someone will hear that and say, oh, you're going to, what, experiment on prisoners or poor people? No, no, not, not at all. So this is one thing people don't realize, and, you know, they say, oh, that means you're going to test on humans. Well, humans are being tested on. Humans, you know, there's a reason why. So in the drug development line, for example, the way the, the phases goes is that, you know, we have what's called a preclinical or before human phase, and that can include animal experiments, that can include computer modeling, that can include in vitro testing, and all these other types of testing. That means before you get to a live human. But once you pass, once a drug seems to be effective in that phase, then it has to go through human testing. So this is where we enroll humans for clinical trials. So humans are being tested on. But what we need to do is make sure that humans are as safe as possible when they get to the point where they're volunteering for clinical trials. And animal experiments are not doing that. If most of the drugs that are found safe and effective in animals are found to be unsafe or ineffective in humans, we are really putting humans at risk. So what we need are more effective types of tests that we would do before we get to the live, full human phase. And this is what I mean by human-based testing. It's not a live human being, but it's testing methods that are based on human biology and human physiology. So examples include um, things like human organs on a chip. Um, there's um, an, an organization in, at Harvard called the VEAST Institute, which is really um, spearheading 
um, some of this endeavor in creating human organs on a chip. And what they're doing is that they're distilling the human organ down to the micro level, which is where everything happens. It's where disease takes place. It's where drug safety and effectiveness takes place. So they can distill, for example, a human lung into a microchip. And this micro human lung functions like a human lung. It breathes. It has blood circulation. It functions like a regular human lung. And so they're developing multiple human organs on a chip. So we're getting, they're getting the kidney on the chip, the brain or mini brain on the chip, and so on. And what they hope to do is connect all of these organs to create the human body on a chip so that you have you can see how a drug sort of courses its way, for example, throughout the entire human body by connecting these different human organs on a chip. This is just one example of the human-based testing method, but the benefits of this is that it's based on human biology. It's not based on the biology of a dog or a monkey or a cat or a rat. It's based on the biology of a human being, and this is what we need to be doing. I, you know, I, when I look at my dad, he, he suffers from diabetes, and there are very few medicines that are helping him out there. And I truly believe that part of the reason why we are having, why he is suffering from pain from his diabetes is because we have relied heavily on experimenting on animals and not on really understanding what's going on in the human body. And so we need to move away from trying to experiment on animals and recreating false diseases in animals and start understanding what's happening in the human body. Human organs on a chip and other human-based testing methods like lab-grown organs, um, imaging studies like magnetic resonance imaging studies that can really give us a good look at what's going on in the body and what's going on in the brain. These are the types of tests that we need to be focusing on. Oh, that is so exciting. I know in the early days of the Vegan Society, the society supported the Nature Cure Clinic in London because people just assumed we're going to have to do these alternative kinds of therapies because we can no longer use medicine because everything's been tested on animals. So the future looks as if ethical vegans will have lots more opportunities now, do you think that the kind of big business element of animal experimentation will be a problem in getting some of these changes implemented? Oh, yes. There's a lot of money to be made in animal experiments. I mean, it's not just um, – so we're talking about, first of all, people. If we're looking at academia, we have a lot of PhDs and other researchers who have built their careers on animal experimentation. So they're very reluctant to change. We also have private industries who have built, um, who make a lot of money based on animal experimentation. So we have contract research labs who do, who house the animals and who do the research on animals for other companies. Um, there's a company called Covance. That's one example. It's one of the largest, worldwide largest contract research organizations, and they are some of the biggest experimenters on animals worldwide. They're making a lot of money of experimenting on animals. There are also businesses that are providing the supplies for these animal laboratories. So the people who supply the food, who make the food, the people who make the cages, the people who make the uh, devices that strap the animals down, devices that hurt the animals, devices that, you know, put electrodes in animals' brains and so on. There's a lot of money to be made out of animal experiments. And just like in any other field, in any other type of business, 
when you try to change that, there are going to be a lot of people who are going to pretty much go up in arms and try to fight that change because that means they're losing money. But their loss is our gain, is human gain. It's, you know, it's, it's to our benefit to start moving science into the 21st century. I mean, when you think about it, no other scientific field is trapped in doing, this, the, in doing science the same way it did in the past. I mean, you know, even though, let's say, the um, Apollo 11 uh, rocket got the men to the moon, we would never today say that since it worked in the past, that's what we need to do today. That's what we need to use today. No, we've created new, uh, new space shuttles and, and much improved technology to get us into space. But with, with medical research, we remain trapped in using a technology in a sense that's from the past. It's from, it's from hundreds of years ago. And yet we remain trapped in that. We haven't moved on. And it's time that we do. And it's to all of our benefit. There are a lot of people who are waiting for cures and waiting for drugs to help them that aren't going to get it as long as we continue to use animal experiments because we are likely throwing away incredible cures just because they didn't work in animals but would have worked in us. Well, as long as there's somebody like you <laughs> working there in Washington, D.C. and doing all these amazing things, the future looks bright. I, I have so enjoyed our conversation. It has simply sped by. For those of you who would like more of our wonderful guest, before we get her on again with her next book, her website is Aisha Akhtar, A-Y-S-H-A-A-K-H. T-A-R dot com, and that will be on the show notes at mintstreetvegan.net, so you can just get um, Dr. Akhtar's information, also find out more about Riverdale, and who knows, maybe some of those people who have been doing nasty things to animals will find out that they're very gifted at making vegan cheese, and uh, everybody gets to live happily ever after. So thank you, Dr. Akhtar. What, what a pleasure it has been to speak with you. Thank you. The pleasure so, was truly mine. Oh, you're so welcome. We will have to get together in the real world one of these days. And listeners, next week, the show is going to be pre-recorded. And oh my gosh, is it a doozy. You're going to love this. It is Pramoda Chitrabanhu. We had her on once before as a short session guest. And I got so many amazing emails and social media notes saying, love this woman, bring her back. Pramoda is a wonderful teacher from the Jain tradition. And she will change you. Just spending that time listening to her voice will do something at a cellular spiritual level. I don't even know how to explain it except to say, listen, you'll be really glad you did. Now, I will be off next week on the Melissa Etheridge cruise. Yes, I will be speaking for a thousand people out on the high seas. Very, very exciting. And I'll be hearing concerts when all sorts of amazing people like vegan Joan Jett and Melissa Etheridge and Crystal Bowersock. Ah, it's going to be so much fun. So I'll be back with you in two weeks. And in the meantime, God bless you. Eat your veggies. 
Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Are you ready for deeper spiritual breakthroughs? Have you wondered how to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life in practical ways? Do you feel your soul is calling you to deeper purposes? Join Reverend Galen McDowell live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Central for Truth Transforms, a discussion on how God within you, as you, is the power to transform your life. If you really believe that consciousness determines your experiences and that you are an individualized expression of God, join us as we help awaken and transform the consciousness of humanity. We will discuss, through lecture, live interviews and call-in questions, spiritual healing, prayer, prosperity, forgiveness, new thought views about eternal life, and much more. The world is waiting for your truth transformation, only on Unity Online Radio. In this constantly changing world, life and personal values can seem more than a little unstable. Just when you think you have it all figured out, then everything changes. Sometimes life can seem overwhelming. Well, the good news is you can change your life. You have within you the power to learn how to flow with the changes and smooth out the bumps of life. You can experience the joy, peace, health, and abundance you deserve. You were created to be happy and productive. That urge to grow and express yourself was put there for a reason. Learn the spiritual principles that can help you not just to survive, but thrive in this changing world. At Unity, we'd like to help you do just that. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. Have you ever considered that everything you think, say, and do is a prayer to the universe? What would your life be like if you activated the power of yes? Join Reverend Beverly Molander and her exciting guests on Affirmative Prayer, Activating the Power of Yes, to find out how they activated the power of yes in their lives, their communities, or even the world. If they can do it, you can too. Listen to Beverly Molander and her guests live every Monday at noon central. 1 p.m. Eastern on Affirmative Prayer, activating the power of yes. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. 
I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.